You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Good afternoon, everybody. It's a delight to be with you once again, and today we're changing genres. So uh, the last uh, three days, we've been doing uh, narrative literature, uh, but today we're going to be looking at a new genre, wisdom literature. Um, I'm assuming by now you are all familiar with the terms genre and the different literary styles we, we use. Uh, there's quite a number of genre, actually, in the Bible. Uh, but wisdom is an important one in the Old Testament, and there are several Old Testament books that fall into this category. So uh, we typically call this wisdom literature. Uh, and so I want to do a little bit of introduction to wisdom literature to get us started, and then we are going to do two of the four books in the Old Testament that are wisdom literature. We're going to do the book of Kohelet, or Ecclesiastes, uh, and we will also do the Song of Songs. Um, uh, Job is also part of wisdom literature, but I think you do that. When, when do you do the book of Job? Have you already done it, or you, yeah. you've already done it? Okay. So I don't know if you, did you do an introduction to wisdom literature when you talked about Job? Okay, so anyway, I'm not going to be just repeating stuff somebody else has covered. Okay, and then the book of Proverbs is also wisdom literature. Um, so anyway, that's what we're going to be doing today and tomorrow, and then you get a big weekend break, unless you don't have your homework done. <laughs> All right. King's Week is coming, that's right. It's a big week. Yep. So, are you ready to get started? Yeah. All right, let's talk about the character of ancient Near Eastern wisdom, first of all, in the broad category, not just of the people of Israel, but in the ancient Near East in general. Uh, wisdom was widely appreciated and extolled in the ancient Near East. It was a very long and respected tradition going back 
many centuries before the Israelites even came out of Egypt. Uh, so we have examples of wisdom literature in the ancient Near East that some of it is probably a thousand years older than the Israelites coming out of Egypt. So it's a very long uh, and respected tradition. And individuals who were considered wise people belong to kind of a special class, kind of like prophets or like uh, priests. Uh, they didn't wear special garments like priests did, but they were recognized as a special class of people. And you find them mentioned in a variety of passages in the Hebrew Bible. These are the basic words uh, which I've listed in Hebrew, uh, but the definitions are there. First, there is the chacham. So let's try a little bit of guttural speech here. Chacham. All right, that's not too bad. Uh, that means a wise person. Okay. Um, uh, incidentally, unlike priests, which were exclusively male, wise people could be either male or female in the Old Testament. Uh, similar in that way, I suppose, to prophets. Prophets could be either male or female in the Old Testament. So uh, the chacham has a masculine form and a feminine form as well. Then there is chokmah. You want to try that one? Chokmah. Okay, that means wisdom. All right. And then there is uh, bina. That's pretty easy, not a guttural. Bina. Okay, that basically means insight, something like that. So those are the, some of the more important words in the Hebrew language regarding this category. So these people were a very essential part of most ancient cultures and most royal courts. Usually people who were considered wise people ended up being advisors. Now we've already looked at a couple of advisors that were connected to the life of David. We just talked about them yesterday, Ahithophel, and then uh, th this is the one that uh, advised one kind of thing, and then there's Hushai, who David sent back in to infiltrate the Absalom conspiracy, but both of those were considered to be chacham or chachamim, wise men. Uh, and they were well-respected. Now, obviously, you can't take the advice of both of them because they both gave different advice. Uh, Absalom, at least in a practical sense, took the wrong advice, uh, and he would pay for it. Uh, but anyway, they tended to be personal advisors to the king. So uh, a little bit about wisdom, because I think wisdom in the ancient world is a little bit different than we typically think about it in a modern Christian sense especially since, in a Christian sense, we use the term the gift of wisdom, which is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul enumerates in uh, 1 Corinthians. He talks about the gift of knowledge and the gift of wisdom. Uh, ancient Near Eastern wisdom, uh, I suppose there certainly are some similarities, but they aren't exactly the same. In one sense, at least, uh, ancient Near Eastern wisdom is not strictly spiritual because there were wise people all over the ancient world. In fact, some cultures were sort of, um, they were sort of highlighted as, as uh, having a lot more wisdom people in them than other cultures. One would be the Edomites. 
the Edomites were very well known in the ancient world as being uh, you know, a producer of wisdom people. Uh, but essentially, wisdom is uh, uh, a combination of intelligence, good judgment, good sense, your uh, ability to read situations so that you can say this is the best response to this circumstance, uh, often moral understanding. Uh, it's the ability to understand your surroundings, to get a good feel for what's happening in the world, what's happening in your present situation, and how should you respond to it. Uh, being able to foresee someone else's reactions, someone else's... Uh, uh, approach to things, being able to discern uh, sort of their intent, which is maybe beyond just what is uh, on the face of things. Uh, applying your own resources at critical points, uh, offering perspective, that sort of thing. So the wise person in the ancient Near East uh, studied, uh, observed people, and meditated on uh, the larger issues of life uh, as it ought to be lived. Uh, by the way, when I use the abbreviation A-N-E, that means the ancient Near East. I don't know if I mentioned that before, but I often just abbreviate that. Uh, so. We have it on the back of our Okay, all right, very good. Sure, all right, sure. I'm sure they memorized that whole list, right? Yeah. All right, very good. Now, since the Enlightenment, uh, maybe I ought to stop there. Do we know what the Enlightenment is? It's a what? Well, it's after the Middle Ages, yeah. It's, uh, it's actually after the Renaissance. Uh, so it is the intellectual movement of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries, which basically is trying to unpack the uh, scientific approach to the world. Uh, so you have everything from... Uh, the idea that the, uh, the universe does not revolve around the sun, but rather that the planets revolve around the universe and the universe is sort of uh, in a galaxy of its own out here in the edge somewhere. Uh, you have um, uh, the exploration of medicine. So people are learning about anatomy. They're learning about what actually works in surgical procedures. You have people exploring everything from uh, uh, pressure to length to speed, all of those things that mechanically make up the world that we live in. And so <clears throat> since that time, modern people have been mostly concerned with mechanical explanations of things. And if you go to a tech school or even to a university, uh, even these days, you're going to find that you will have less and less in the field of liberal arts and more and more in the field of technological approaches to almost everything in life. Uh, if you go back a century or so, when you went to university, you took your undergraduate in liberal arts, which meant you studied a wide range of things that are supposed to make you, theoretically, a better person, a, a more insightful person. <clears throat> Today, many of those courses are, are no longer either offered or you have to be in a special category if you're even going to take those courses. Uh, everything is boiled down 
to basically technological kinds of things. Um, so wisdom literature is very much different than that. Wisdom literature is concerned with teleology. Now there's a $4 word. What is teleology? Yeah, that's the key word, purpose. Teleology is concerned with the purpose of things. It's concerned with how things are going to come out in the end, the long-range effect of things. And so uh, wisdom addresses things like sex, work, family, justice, society, uh, but largely in, in the sense of the long-range effect of the way we experience and uh, see those things in life. So it's looking at the purpose of those kinds of things. So wisdom literature is relevant for the modern person because I think the modern person to a large degree doesn't think teleologically. Uh, we have become more and more uh, focused on the immediate and less and less focused on the, the bigger picture or the longer range picture. So the modern crisis of wisdom is that we have unprecedented knowledge and power, but we no longer know who we are or why we're here. And so that creates, I think, a crisis of wisdom. Um, often enough, people don't even raise those kinds of questions because they, they're not really scientific questions. You can't put them in a test tube. You can't measure them. Uh, you can't, uh, you know... Uh, use Boyle's theory on them, uh, you, uh, they're, they're more abstract. And because they're more abstract, they're a little more difficult to get your head around. Um, so when we look at ancient Near Eastern wisdom, then we are looking at a, a category of literature that does, in fact, look at this bigger, longer range uh, teleological uh, way of thinking about the world. So Hebrew wisdom literature... Uh, is not unique in the ancient world. Many, many countries and cultures had wise people and produced wisdom literature. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the instructions of Shirapak. Uh, how many of you have read that? I didn't think you had. Uh, it's pretty uh, uh, esoteric, uh, and you don't find it in most libraries unless it's a university or something like that. But this would be the instructions of Shirapak, the son of Ubaratatu, who wrote this in 2600 BC. Now that's a long time ago. That's four and a half thousand years ago. So this is a piece of wisdom literature that is much older than Moses. Uh, Moses is going to live in around the 13th century, more or less, if you take the late date for the Exodus or in the 15th century, if you take the early date for the Exodus. But either way, you're at least a thousand years earlier or more than that uh, for a piece of literature like this. You have another one called, I Will Praise the Lord of Wisdom, 1700 BC. You have one called The Instructions of a High Car. This would be a little bit later than Moses, about 500 BC. So these are things that come out of Sumerian culture and Babylonian culture. 
Uh, you also have some examples in Egypt. You have what is called the wisdom of Amenemope. Now, that one takes a little bit of work to say. Amenemope. Sounds like you just stumbled over something. <laughs> uh, this was produced uh, roughly about the time of Moses. Uh, and uh, this, is, uh, this is one uh, visual example. Uh, this one is the wisdom of Shurapak, which is at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Um, by the way, uh, anybody live up there in the Midwest uh, near Illinois? Okay. Uh, so, oh, all right. Well, if you get to go to Chicago sometime and you have an extra afternoon, uh, go to the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. It has uh, a really good collection of artifacts from Persia, Assyria, Babylon, and ancient Mesopotamia. Um, uh, you might need a little help in understanding why some of these are important because they don't always make the connection to the Bible, even if that connection is there. They have, for instance, a prism, an Assyrian prism that is going to name Hezekiah by name uh, in Assyrian cuneiform. Uh, but it's got a number of things like that. And so uh, you, you can uh, also, if you're studying something like the Book of Esther and the Persian Empire, they've got a number of artifacts from Susa, uh, and Persepolis, which is in the Persian area of, uh, of the ancient Near East. Uh, so anyway, this, uh, it's uh, something to know about. Yeah. Occasionally, I try to w w connect people to stuff like that uh, if they get a chance. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know, two or three years ago, we did a tour from here for the Museum of the Bible up in Washington, D.C., which is similar to that sort of thing. Um, they have a lot of, uh, a lot of nice exhibits there. Um, kind of got themselves in a bit of a problem here a couple years ago in that they bought some stuff on the black market for an exorbitant price, and it was stolen from the university library rare documents at Cambridge University in England. Pardon me? I am. So they've, they've got kind of a... Unfortunately, they've, they've acquired a bad reputation in the scholarly world because of buying stolen goods. Uh, without investigating them very well, and they were warned in advance by good scholars, you need to not, you need to watch out for this stuff, but they didn't watch out for it, and so they had to give it all back, um, and uh, plus they had to pay some pretty hefty fines. Plus they lost all the money they used to buy it, which is millions and millions, because uh, this stuff's not, you know, you can't go pick it up at the dollar store somewhere. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> that's a that's a come on a, on a on a side trail here a bit. But other kinds of things, if you if you get to go to England, you need to go to the British Museum in London. If you get to go to Paris, you need to go to the Louvre. Just pass by the Mona Lisa because it's small, it's unimpressive. There's 40 people trying to see it, and you won't be able to see it anyway. Uh, just go right on down to the ancient Near Eastern section and uh, have a look at the uh, Code of Hammurabi, for instance, which is in the Louvre. Uh, or things like that. Uh, in Berlin, the, uh, the Pergamum is a great museum. Um, and there's some in the United States. You have some good ones. Uh, the, the New York Met has some very good stuff. Uh, the uh, Detroit Institute of Arts has a fairly modest but pretty good little ancient Near Eastern gallery. Um, so anyway, this is one of those kinds of things. Uh, Let's take a look at a little bit of the wisdom, which I have translated here for you from the ancient language. 
these are like, like sort of like the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs. So here's one. You should not pick a quarrel. It will disgrace you. Well, that's pretty good advice. Uh, I think we could all buy that. Uh, you should not dally with a married woman. It will bring slander. It also might bring the thunder of her husband on your head, too. <laughs> he doesn't mention that, but I can certainly see that happening. Uh, do not live with an arrogant man. He will make you like a slave girl. All right. This is wisdom. Ancient wisdom. Uh, a loving heart maintains a family, but a hateful one destroys it. You could almost say that last one came out of someplace in the Bible. I mean, it sounds kind of like that, you know. It's, uh, you see a lot of, of small uh, bicolons like that in the book of Proverbs. This is another one. This is uh, uh, called, I will praise the Lord of wisdom, uh, but it has been nicknamed the Babylonian Job tablet because it's the story of a man who is wondering why the gods have it in for him. And he's been a good guy. He's done all he's supposed to do. He's been righteous, at least in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking about being righteous. And yet a bunch of bad things have happened to him. And he's questioning, is it even worthwhile for me to, to try to please the gods. Maybe they just, maybe they just are mean-spirited in the first place, you know. So it's not exactly like the book of Job, but there's some common themes where you have somebody suffering and wondering why they are suffering. Um, th that one's in the British Museum in London. This is a, a piece of Egyptian. This is the instruction of Amenemope, which is uh, about 1,000 B.C., uh, about the time of Solomon. This one is really interesting because there's some lines that seem quite similar to things that you read in the Bible. Uh, it's a collection of wisdom, uh, and a lot of times the themes of this sort of wisdom were reproduced in various texts of the ancient world as well as the texts that we have in the Bible. So let me show you a couple of similar lines. The first one is from Proverbs, and the parallel one is from Amenemope, uh, chapter 30. In Proverbs, it says, have I not written for you 30 sayings of counsel and knowledge? And in Amenemope, it says, look to these 30 chapters. They inform, they educate. Well, those aren't identical, but they're, they're pretty close. And this one is really close. Incline thine ear and hear the words of the wise and apply thy heart to my doctrine, for it is pleasant if thou keep them in thy belly that they may be established together upon thy lips. That's in Proverbs. That's the old English way of doing it, I, I realize, with the these and the thou sort of thing. Uh, but then in Amenemope, give thine ear and hear what I say, and apply thine heart to apprehend. It is good for thee to place them in thine heart, and let them rest in the casket of thy belly, that they may act as a peg upon thy tongue. Very, very similar ideas. In fact, these are so similar that many scholars have suggested that maybe whoever is putting together the little quips and proverbs may have borrowed a few things from some of these other ancient lines because they, they are so similar. Um, in any case, there are a, a variety of kinds of word links and wisdom links between the wisdom literature of Israel and the other texts of the ancient Near East. They had some shared ideas.
Remember the queen of Shiva came all the way from way down south somewhere, uh, southern Arabia probably, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So she is familiar with the wisdom tradition, and she wants to see what Solomon has to offer in this regard. In fact, she was quite impressed. She said, the half hasn't even been told me. I, I, I'm amazed at the wisdom of this Israelite king. The Israelites, of course, had certain wise men uh, from other nations that are described in various texts of the Bible. Uh, and the book of Proverbs actually includes some people there that we don't know much about other than that they were wise people in the ancient world, people like Lemuel. You ever heard a sermon from Lemuel or Agur? Uh, I know you've heard some sermons from some of these people because the one of them is the uh, rather lengthy poem on the uh, noble woman. And they always read it at Mother's Day, which is coming up here in a few days. So that one is not by Solomon. That is by Agur, who is a, a wise man in the ancient world. We don't know anything more about him other than his name, but there he is. So what do you think about the fact that Israel's wisdom tra tradition follows the pattern of wisdom in other ancient Near Eastern traditions? I don't know if that's a new idea to you or if you ever thought very much about something like that. Yeah, well, that's true enough. Yeah. In fact, there are quite a number of laws in the Hammurabi Code that are almost identical, in some cases almost word for word, with the laws that are in the Torah. That is true enough. No? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if I say something like this, all truth is God's truth. What I'm saying is that insofar as it is the truth, it is God's truth wherever it came from, if it is genuinely true. Um, that means that I can find truth in other places in the world besides just in the Bible. Does the Bible contain all of the truth in the whole world? No. If you want to f find out how to do geometry, you're just not going to find it in the Bible. You're going to have to go get a high school textbook or something. Um, is geometry true? Well, it works time after time after time, so I think we would probably say it is true. So the Bible is true, but there is truth in a larger framework than just the kind of truth we have in the Bible. Uh, can you think of some examples in the Bible where truths are described that are not from the Old Testament, but they are used in support of uh, ideas that are in the Bible, besides the ones we're talking about, of course? Go ahead, Anna, tell us. Like the what? Places where other wisdom is used. Sure, sure. I would, say, I would say a good example is when St. Paul quotes Epimenides. Uh, and he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Uh, 
many Christians have tried to find that passage in the Old Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. It's in the hymn to Zeus. Um, and he quotes Aratus. Uh, once he quotes Menander. Uh, so uh, I don't think that Paul would necessarily think that Epimenides was a prophet or an apostle or something like that. But insofar as this poet said something that was true, Paul could use that truth and appeal to it because it was, because it was true. So when I say all truth is God's truth, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. So if indeed there was some borrowing of wisdom concepts from the other cultures, how would that affect your understanding of the Bible itself? Go ahead, Tori. You haven't spoken yet, so. Isn't that just like where Paul uses um, the unknown God? To it would be similar to that. He says, well, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. Yeah. yeah. Okay, maybe so. It doesn't, it doesn't undermine the inspiration of Scripture. It just means that the biblical writers were free on occasion to use sources that were maybe a little unusual, but if they felt like they said the truth, then that was okay. Um, does that make sense? Okay, you're all comfortable with that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I would, I would say so, yeah. So to some degree, we're going to be looking at some of those kinds of things when we look at the wisdom literature, even biblical wisdom literature. So wisdom is this recognized social force uh, in ancient Israel. Uh, it is gender neutral. Uh, in fact, uh, in 2 Samuel, uh, during the Shiva revolt, you're going to find a reference to the wise woman of Tekoa. Uh, she is a wisdom figure. And she advises uh, what to do in this particular situation, um, which ends up in cutting some guy's head off. But anyway, uh, <clears throat> in that case, maybe it was wise. I don't know. Um, but individuals uh, uh, certainly uh, got a lot of attention if they were a, a wise person. Uh, we're going to see that in the life of Solomon, which we're going to be talking about next week. But for instance, just to give you one example of Solomon's wisdom, Solomon adjudicates a criminal case with no witnesses. That's hard to do. How does he do this? Well, it's two women, they each have a baby. One of those babies dies in the night and each of them claim the live one. There are no witnesses. How do you adjudicate this case? Solomon, what does Solomon do? He said, we'll just call for a sword, we'll cut it in half, and you get to have half. What is he looking for when he does that? He's looking for an immediate gut reaction, and he knows that'll be the true mom. Is that wisdom? I think it's brilliant. It's incredible wisdom. Uh, but it's the kind of thing that we're talking about, this, this sort of instinctive ability to read someone else and to figure out what's actually going on sort of behind the curtain. Um, <clears throat> so uh, individuals could be trained in wisdom traditions. There are passages that talk about that. Um, Daniel, for instance, 
is going to be taken to Babylon to be trained in the wisdom of the Babylonians, which I don't know, maybe included the Code of Hammurabi. Uh, Hammurabi's codes uh, a few hundred years earlier, but it's the right part of the world and it was still around, so maybe so. But in any case, he went there to train. So alongside people like prophets and priests, there were wise people in the ancient world. Uh, essentially, Hebrew wisdom is practical. Uh, how to get along successfully in life. Uh, and I don't think you should confuse it with the spiritual gift of wisdom in the New Testament. I think those are, are quite different sorts of things. Proverbs generally consist of short, pithy sayings that are antithetic couplets, basically in which the first line um, is stated and then there is the conjunction but, and then kind of the opposite thing uh, is stated. Uh, most of them are fairly short, uh, 20, 25 words, something like that, usually in the Hebrew text. Uh, but typically they express a general truth that is probably true most of the time. But keep in mind that wisdom literature is not the same as law. So when you come to a, a, an apodictic law like you shall not murder, that's that's the way it is all the time. You shouldn't ever murder. Okay? But wisdom often tells you what is generally true, but there may be exceptions. Uh, so you don't want to treat wisdom literature as though these are some sort of divine promises that every time it will happen just this way. These are not, are, are not formula for getting things done a certain way. They are generalisms that are true most of the time. Almost everybody has heard the piece of wisdom from the book of Proverbs that says something like this uh, in the older English versions, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Everybody heard that verse? Is that always true? No. There are good parents, godly parents, who train well, and sometimes they have kids that go the wrong direction. Wisdom isn't a guarantee then. So when we read wisdom literature, you shouldn't read it as though it's some sort of a guarantee. It is a generalism that is true more than it's not true, probably true most of the time, but there are, in fact, possibly exceptions. Uh, so Proverbs um, often have implied applications uh, but again, keep these in, in, in more of a general sense. Now, I'm not going to really cover the book of Proverbs, uh, but I do want to point out some things about the book of Proverbs. For one thing, it has a lot of word groups in it that you should recognize. <clears throat> For instance, you have these words like wisdom, understanding, training, instruction, learning. This is kind of a word group in which all of these words sort of overlap each other a good deal. There are subtle nuances between them, but they're generally going to be talking about the same kind of thing. And then you have a category called the folly, the, the fool, or, or, or the folly of the fool. Um, can you think of any Proverbs that talk about a fool? Okay. You'll find a number of them, and if you look in a concordance, for instance, just look up the word fool, 
or folly, you will find that often as the opposite of wisdom. Uh, wisdom is, uh, is a straight line here, but the, the fool keeps losing his way off to the side somewhere. You have uh, word groups like the mocker, the proud, the cynic, um, people who are always uh, finding the negative side of things. I had a couple of friends a number of years ago that they were so cynical about virtually everything. It was just hard to have a conversation in which it didn't always head off in some kind of a, a very dark negativism of some, of some kind. And, um, you know, I, I just found it hard to stay close to those guys. One of the two has since realized the folly of cynicism. And we're better friends now than we used to be. The other one, I still maintain contact with him, but he's, he's, he's difficult just because of this, this trait. Um, you find uh, words like the friend, the neighbor, and the brother in Proverbs. So things like that are kind of a category. Or things like mother, father, son, child, family kind of relationships. Uh, you find uh, the words that come off of your tongue or truth or gossip or falsehood uh, as opposed to honesty. Um, uh, correction, rebuke, those kind of go together. Uh, life and death go together. Um, so there, there are these kind of word groups. Now, if you, uh, I know you're not supposed to use commentaries, and I'm not going to tell you to use one until you are through with this course. But when you get through this course, if you want to look at some of these word groups in depth, I would highly recommend the commentary in the book of Proverbs by Derek Kidner, who is a professor in England. Uh, he wrote a number of commentaries, uh, but one of them is on the book of Proverbs. And in the introduction to Proverbs, he has a fairly lengthy discussion of a lot of these word groups and how they fit together. Uh, so you might want to jot it down. Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R uh, is his last name. Uh, just a really, really good scholar, a very godly man, um, but knows his onions. Uh, so uh, you might jot him down. Well, wisdom literature is found uh, essentially in two primary collections uh, in the Hebrew Bible. You have... Um, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song. These are the four books in the Bible that belong to wisdom literature. Now, uh, I may say a word about the Psalms in a little bit. Sometimes people categorize that as wisdom literature, but that's probably more in what I would call worship literature rather than wisdom literature. But these four books everybody agrees on belong to wisdom literature. Also, in the Apocrypha, there are a couple of books of wisdom literature, Sirach and the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, you're using the ESV, so you don't have an Apocrypha in your Bible. But if, if you want to read the Apocrypha, you can buy either a Revised Standard Version or a New Revised Standard Version, both of which come with the Apocrypha in editions that say... RSV with Apocrypha or something like that. Um, and so those are pretty easily accessible. Or if you have a Roman Catholic friend 
they will have a Roman Catholic Bible, either the New American Bible or the Jerusalem Bible or the New Jerusalem Bible. Those are all Catholic translations, and they will all have the Apocrypha in them as well. Uh, Sirach and the Wisdom of Solomon are wisdom kinds of literature. They're not in the Old Testament, but they are in the intertestamental books. <clears throat> Which raises an interesting question. Should we be using the Apocrypha as Christians? And if so, how should we use it? Uh, have you talked about the Apocrypha much uh, so far in this class? Yeah. I've read the whole Apocrypha. That's what Good. Yeah, well, there's some, there's some areas there that you scratch your head a bit on. I, I would grant you that. On the other hand, these two pieces of wisdom literature from the Apocrypha that I'm showing you right now, Sirach and the Wisdom of Solomon, both of them are quoted by St. Paul in the New Testament, in the letter to the Romans. Uh, so you don't tend to quote things you haven't been reading. Okay, you buy that? <laughs> so apparently Paul considers these to be valid, at least in, this, in, in the parts that he's using. Um, I always find it um, kind of fun to get into this sort of discussion with people who are King James Version only Christians. And you see them, uh, the further south you go, the more you see them. Um, <laughs> As you get down in the deep south, you'll find churches that will say such and such Baptist church, King James Version only. Um, uh, yeah, the Hebrew Bible, the Biblia Berica Stuttgartensia. Well, I, I like, personally, I like, and, and I like several for different reasons. I like the ESV, which you are using, because it is a very literal translation. And to a large degree, it's the way I would probably translate most of those passages. When I translate from the Hebrew Bible, which I do, uh, I find that a lot of my translations sound a lot like the ESV. Also like the NIV. The NIV is a little bit uh, freer in its translation, but often it captures nuances that the average reader misses. Uh, I like the, the earlier versions of the NIV than the later ones. They've gotten the last few years into gender neutrality and stuff which I think is unnecessary. Um, but the earlier editions of the NIV, I still like very well. They have some wonderful, uh, wonderful English renderings that I think are very good. I also like the NRSV. And I like it because it has the most extensive footnotes on manuscripts of any of the English versions. It is chock full of footnotes on manuscripts, either the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, the Targums, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or whatever uh, else you can, you can think of. So those, are, those I think, are, are, are really good ones. Um, all of the major English translations, though, are, are good translations. I just think some maybe are better than others. Uh, and translation is always an ongoing work uh, because language changes. The English language changes. So the idea that you can get a translation that's good for sort of forever is, is really a, an exercise in futility because language changes. Uh, there are words that don't mean the same in English as they did 400 years ago in the days of William Shakespeare. For instance... 
take the English word conversation. What does that mean to you? What we're having right now, we're talking. However, 400 years ago, it meant behavior. And so when you read the word conversation in the King James Version, it's not talking about having a chat with each other. It's talking about behavior. That has nothing to do with Greek or Hebrew. It has to do with English. Uh, English itself has, has adjusted itself over the years, and, and words tend to take on new meanings. Um, I find that, I found that on a number of occasions to be a problem for me, even in my own lifetime, because things that I said that were quite acceptable when I was 15 or 20, I find now are obscene or something like that, and I had no idea they were. So when I was a pastor, I would go home from church, and my boys would say, do you know what you said? I said, what did I say? He said, so, so I said, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? Oh, you can't be saying that, you know. Uh, <clears throat> so, you know, you, you, you have to make adjustments. That's, that's part of the game. All right, the Hebrew Bible, we've looked at this before, the three sections of the Hebrew Bible, but this is where the wisdom literature falls in the Hebrew Bible. Proverbs and Job, Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes all fall in the third section called the Ketubim or the writings of the Hebrew Bible. This is the latest collection of works in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so they don't appear in the first two sections, although you will find some small sections of wisdom in some of these earlier books. But largely, the wisdom literature belongs to the third section. And you'll notice that two of them belong to the megalote. Uh, I'm going to explain that a bit later. Uh, but for right now, just notice that they're together with three other books, uh, giving a total of five in this little section. So two basic types of wisdom literature, what I would call practical wisdom literature and what I would call speculative wisdom literature. So practical wisdom literature is the art of just getting along in life in a practical successful way uh, with a reasonable degree of happiness. Um, this would be like the proverb, um, um, I would rather live in a corner of the rooftop than with a loud woman. Um, it's in the Bible, it says that. <laughs> if I were a woman, I'd rather live in the corner of the house top with an overbearing man, too. Oh, that's, uh, I mean, there's probably a, an opposite side to that. Uh, but anyway, uh, you... Uh, you find these interesting kinds of things. And some of the Proverbs are, are just, uh, when you stop and think about it, they're just really funny. Um, like a jewel in a pig's nose is a woman without discretion. I think that's an amazing analogy, you know? I mean, I wouldn't have come up with it myself, you know? Uh, the sluggard is so lazy, he doesn't even get his spoon to his mouth. He just kind of sits there like a dummy, you know? Uh, so you have a lazy man. He won't, he won't even get out of bed in the morning because he says, there's a lion in the street. I can't go outside. There's a lion out there. So I just roll over and 
sleep some more. Um, anyway, those are practical kinds of things. Uh, uh, that type of wisdom is often expressed in Proverbs, which are usually two lines, uh, two antithetic lines, one stressing a, sort of the positive side of things, the other stressing the negative side of things. But then there is speculative wisdom, and speculative wisdom is the kind of wisdom that says, what if this were the case? And then it makes you think about that. It is much more philosophical. Uh, it addresses things like justice, things like suffering. Uh, so that kind of wisdom is not usually handled in a two-line couplet. It's usually handled in a longer way, and sometimes the whole book uh, is involved in addressing this kind of question. We're going to see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a speculative wisdom kind of book. Uh, you see it in the book of Job, in which the problem of human suffering is, is really carried out through the whole 42 chapters. So this is, a, is the kind of wisdom that uh, is really in, uh, inciting you to think deeply about things. Well, wisdom is acquired through observation and reflection uh, and Ultimately, wisdom is going to come from God himself. He is the true source of wisdom. So it begins with the awe of God. Almost hesitate to use the word awe because it's become so threadbare these days. Everything is awesome. Everything from McDonald's hamburgers to, you know, socks are awesome. Uh, I prefer the older meaning where the term awe is a rarely used word for things that really truly had great significance. And that's the way I'm using it here. Uh, the awe of God. Uh, something that is way out of the range of ordinary life. Uh, wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs as pre-existent with God. There is a rather famous passage in which wisdom is depicted as a woman who is alongside God when he creates the world. And he draws from this wisdom figure in creating the world. Uh, sometimes uh, scholars call her Lady Wisdom, uh, because, uh, largely because wisdom is feminine grammatically in Hebrew. So everything in Hebrew is going to be either masculine or feminine. I mean everything. Uh, everything from tables to chairs to doors to horses. I mean, everything is either male or female. And in some cases, it could be either depending on how, uh, how it's spelled. Um, but uh, you find uh, wisdom is a, is a feminine category grammatically, and so uh, that lends itself quite easily to then using this anthropomorphism of, of, of Lady Wisdom. So above all, fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of wisdom. So let me stop at this point with what I've said by way of introduction and uh, see if you have any uh, contributions to make or maybe questions to ask about this category of wisdom. Hannah. I have a question about Sure. Right. Well, for one thing, wisdom in the Old Testament is acquired. 
by observation, experience, uh, through, the, through the long period of living life. So in other words, wisdom is developed. Wisdom is enhanced. Wisdom grows. Whereas the spiritual gifts in the New Testament are gifts. They're not, they're not the product of education. They're not the product of learning certain things. They're, they're, they're gifts. So in that sense, I would suggest the major difference is that one is a process, whereas the other is uh, more like instantaneous. It's, it's a gift that God gives on a particular occasion. So that's why I say don't confuse the two. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Anybody else? Are you ready to start the book of Kohelet? which is what you would call Ecclesiastes. I'm going to use the term Kohelet because I'm used to using that. That is the Hebrew word for the preacher or the speaker in the book of Ecclesiastes. So uh, uh, we're getting ready to start that and we will spend the rest of our day in this book. We've got about a half hour to break. How are we doing? Think you can last for 30 minutes? Okay. If you can't, uh, you can go to sleep and uh, we'll throw spit wads at you or something. <laughs> All right. The title of this book, Kohelet, is a word that's a little difficult to translate because we don't have an English equivalent. So you're going to find a, quite a bit of variety in English Bibles when they try to translate this word. Literally, it means someone who calls together an assembly. Uh, it is related to the Hebrew word for congregation. Uh, so there's a number of English equivalents. In your ESV, I think it's going to use the term the preacher. Uh, does that sound familiar from your reading of Ecclesiastes? Um, and you'll find that's also going to be used in uh, some other English Bibles. Uh, the NRSV is going to call it the teacher. The New English Bible at Cambridge University is going to call him the speaker. And Eugene Peterson's The Message is much more daring. He calls it the quester. In other words, someone who is in search of wisdom. Um, I'm just going to call him Kohelet, um, which is not a translation at all. It's just the Hebrew word itself. But you do find some variations in this, uh, this title. Uh, we use the English title Ecclesiastes, which goes back to the Septuagint. So it comes from the word ecclesia, which you may already know is the New Testament word for church. So Ecclesiastes is related to the word ecclesia, uh, and it basically means someone who calls a congregation together as well. Um, but that's where it comes from anyway. So who is this guy? Who is this Kohelet? In Hebrew, this is not a proper name. Uh, you ready for just a little bit of grammar? Uh, in uh, Hebrew... If you use a word with a definite article, which means like the, it is not a proper noun. 
at least usually. Now, there are, in every language, there are exceptions, but this is a general rule, okay? On the other hand, if you use a word without a definite article, it usually is a proper noun. And uh, the word as it is used in the book of Ecclesiastes always has the definite article. So it is not a proper noun in the sense of a name. So Kohelet is not a name like, I don't know, Abraham or Jacob or something like that. It is a title which refers to the speaker who calls together the congregation. Um, there are some places where translations struggle with words like that. For instance, in the book of Job, almost all English translations capitalize the word Satan. But in Hebrew, it is not Satan, it is the Satan. And it isn't a name, it's a category. Uh, in Genesis, we often capitalize the word Adam. But most of the passages in Genesis are not a proper name. It's the human rather than Adam as a, as a proper name. So there are, there are some areas which, uh, you know, scholars discuss and fuss a bit with a bit. But in general, at least, the term Kohelet is agreed upon that this is not a proper name. Uh, the author seems to pattern himself after Solomon, who is, of course, the king of Israel, the son of David. However, the name Solomon does not appear in the book in the first person, not like I, Solomon, or something like that. Uh, so it's a little more ambiguous. And traditionally, it's been supposed that Solomon wrote this book maybe at the end of his life when he had kind of fallen off the wagon and gotten into some things that he should not have gotten into. Uh, that's a long-standing tradition in the Christian church. Most modern scholars are doubtful whether Solomon wrote this. Rather, they think Solomon is more like a literary fiction in which the reader is to sort of put himself in the robes of Solomon and sort of walk through the experience in the book of Ecclesiastes as though he were Solomon who had all of his resources, his wealth, his opportunity, his time, and so on. Uh, if you take Solomon as the author, then you're going to read this book more like a confession. He's going to talk about the things that he did, and many of them weren't good. Um, on the other hand, if you read it more like a literary fiction, which is uh, what I am actually going to approach it as, then you are sort of looking over the shoulder of someone who is experimenting with this what-if kind of thing uh, and explaining how things will turn out if you go a certain direction as opposed to a different direction. So a lot of interpreters think Solomon is, is, is really part of the book, but more as a literary fiction than as a real person. Um, so anyway, parts of the book are composed in the third person, uh, even though part of it is in the first person, um, that there's some changes there. So whether or not Solomon wrote it, at least the idea is that we are dealing with a Solomon-type person who has available all the money he needs, all the time he needs, all the resources he needs. Have you ever speculated on how you would live life if suddenly you won the lottery. 
Probably everybody's at least thought about it a time or two. Well, that's kind of what's happening in the book of, Co uh, of Ecclesiastes with Kohelet. He has unlimited resources. And so he's going to explore life to the full to see what it will bring. Um, he's going to be able to do that in ways you can't because you don't have enough money. And you are, I'm guessing, like most of the YWAMers I've met in the world, in a word, poor. Uh, economically at the low end of resources. Is that, is that generally true? Yeah. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit otherwise or they're going to come and ask you for some help, right? <laughs> All right, there's a couple of really important expressions in this book that we need to get a handle on. One is another Hebrew word, which is the word hevel. It means mist or vapor or emptiness or breath. So again, it doesn't have an exact English equivalent. It has, it has close, but it depends on the way it's used as the nuance you want to have for it. So this is the, this is the word that the older English translations translated as vanity. And the newer English translations are going to usually offer something else. What is your ESV use for this word. It's the very first words in the first verse. So what does it say? Does it use the word vanity? vanity? Say vanity of vanities? Is that what it says? Okay, so it is following, it is following the tradition of William Tyndale, who, so far as I know, is the first English Bible translator to translate it as vanity of vanities. Then it is captured in the King James Version, which was uh, the basic Bible of most Protestants for 300 years, and it is now in some of the newer versions. But you will also find words like vapor or emptiness uh, also as alternatives in, in different kinds of translations. Um, so when he begins this book, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity or emptiness. Everything is empty. Uh, he's basically saying something about meaning. Life in the way that he's going to explore it is going to end up as meaningless. And he's going somewhere with this. This isn't just aimless wandering. He is leading you through a particular pathway of exploration. Uh, the other expression that's really important is life under the sun. And you're going to find that over and over and over again in this book. This is a metaphor that brackets out everything except what you can see. Life under the sun is life that you can see, what you can touch, you can observe, you can handle. It's not talking about life in the heavenlies because that's not under the sun. It's not talking about God, at least at first, because God is not under the sun. He's, if you will, over the sun, okay? But under the sun is life as we see it in the visible, tangible world. And this is a metaphor for the repetitious experience of humans as they live life. It's what modern secularists might call the existential search for meaning. 
Uh, I'll come back to the idea of existentialism uh, a little bit later, because even though there's no Hebrew word for existentialism, uh, much of what's happening in this book is along the lines of what we call existential thought uh, in the philosophical word. So Kohelet, is he an atheist? Uh, some of the things he says strike you as really odd uh, and a little bit, a bit at odds with what you find in the rest of the Bible. Uh, this is kind of a secular viewpoint, but he is not an atheist. In fact, atheism is not an option in the ancient world. There were no atheists in the ancient world anywhere. There were no atheists in the Western world until the Enlightenment, basically. Uh, atheism is a product of Enlightenment thought. But if you go back in the history of human life, as far as you can trace it, in every part of the world, without exception, everybody believed in deity. Now, they may have had a pantheon of deities, they may have gods and goddesses, or like the Hebrews who had only one god, but they did not believe in a world without deity. That is a modern conception only. It did not exist in the ancient world anywhere, so far as we can tell. There has been not a single thing ever discovered that would indicate there was such a thing as a formal atheist in the ancient world. So Kohelet is not an atheist either, but he is trying to explore what it would mean if we lived life as what I would call a practical atheist. A practical atheist isn't the person who denies that God exists. A practical atheist is the person who says God's not going to do anything. God is remote. God is not really connected with us. And so it doesn't really matter what I do. God doesn't care. Uh, so that is more the standpoint of Kohelet. Um, he doesn't deny God's existence. In fact, at various points, he will say something about God. But he is trying to search for meaning by only looking under the sun. Suppose we bracket out everything except what we can see and touch and feel and experience. What would it mean to live life that way? That would be practical atheism. Now, God's out there somewhere, but he doesn't pay much attention to us. So I can just go ahead and do what I want to do. Uh, and uh, he's not going to call me to account. Uh, that's life under the sun. So in this um, book, Kohelet is going to move from lifestyle to lifestyle to lifestyle as he explores the various ways of living life under the sun while not recognizing God. And this is an existential theme because it has to do with the question, is there meaning in life. Does life mean anything at all? And can it have meaning apart from God? That's what he's exploring. In the end, he's going to say no. Life does not have meaning apart from God. It is empty. It is mist. It is vapor. But he doesn't begin there. He's going to get you there by a long route. And you're going to have to walk with him through this route to get to that final conclusion. So this book is full of existential themes that underscore this search for meaning. 
That's essentially what we mean when we say existentialism. Existentialism is a philosophical search for meaning. Um, anybody heard of Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist? A couple of you have. Um, one of his famous sayings is, and, and by the way, Sartre was an atheist, not, not a practical one, I mean a formal atheist. Um, he said, existence precedes essence. It's one of his famous lines. What do you think that means? Existence precedes essence. You're on the right track. You're, you're absolutely on the right track. Um, what he's saying is that we all are born into the world without meaning. We exist, but we achieve meaning by our decisions, by our choices, what we eventually do. He is obviously not saying we get our meaning from God. We get meaning from ourselves as we experience things, as we do things. That's what meaning is about. So existence precedes essence. You are not born into the world with meaning, according to Sartre. You, are, you just exist. You're, you, you have existence like a rock or a tree has existence. But you do have, by some strange uh, process of evolution, I suppose, you have developed the capacity to make choices, which rocks don't. Uh, and out of that, you create for yourself meaning. Um, and in a sense, Kohelet is exploring that kind of world from a very long time ago. So the primary term is Havel. By the way, uh, the word Havel is uh, also a proper name in one story in the Bible. And it is the story of Cain and Havel. Where we get the word Abel from is from this word Havel. Um, so you kind of get the idea when you're reading that story, when this kid is named Vapor, he's probably not going to last too long. Um, he ends up, his brother kills him. He doesn't last too long. Uh, anyway, um, that is the name Abel, but it's the same word. It means vapor or mist or emptiness. So there are a number of other words, keywords in the book. I've listed a number of them here. Words like toil, good, wise, son, fool, prophet, death, wicked, work, no, wind, portion, a variety of kind of words that you see popping up in the book of Ecclesiastes that are, that are important for this, for this exploration he's doing. Now, unlike Proverbs and unlike the Psalms, Kohelet has an implicit narrative. It's not a narrative in the sense of the book of 2 Samuel, for instance. It is a collection of philosophical reflections, but it is taking you somewhere. It's not just aimlessly wandering. So this book has a, it has, uh, to borrow the language of Hamlet, it has method in its madness, Okay. It is actually going somewhere and taking you down a path and letting you look over the shoulder of Kohelet as he experiences life under the sun. 
There's not any obvious structure in this book. So I know in the um, DBSs and the SBSs structure is a, a big deal, uh, but it's not going to be as big a deal here as it is in some places. Uh, so there's not any really obvious structure in this book uh, like there would be in, I don't know, say the Gospel of Matthew or something like that. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, he, he is going somewhere, uh, and he's asking you to think through this trip. Uh, it has sort of bookends, the prologue and the epilogue at the end, which get you started and bring you to a conclusion, and then in the middle, you are finding your way between those two points. Uh, ultimately, and this is the main point, ultimately, he's going to say to you, or to anybody that reads his work, that only God can give ultimate meaning to life. If you try to live life under the sun, bracketing out God, you will not find meaning. What you will find is vapor. Only God can give true meaning to life. But he doesn't start out with that. He's going to get you there by steps. And you're going to have to follow him to get to that end. So Kohelet is an explorer. He's a, he's a little bit like a millennial. He's pushing the boundaries. He's pressing the boundaries. He's outside the box, outside the envelope. Uh, he's inviting the reader to join him in this existential search. Uh, he's going to bring his readers to this conclusion, but it's, a, it's, a, it's not a straight line. It's a circuitous route that wanders through a variety of kinds of lifestyles. And along the way, he's going to put himself and everyone who's reading him in the sandals of what in modern life we would call a humanist or a secularist, life under the sun. In fact, in a way, life under the sun is the life of humanism. It's life where man is the measure of all things, rather than God being the measure of all things. So he's going to explore intellectualism. He's going to explore philosophy. Uh, he's going to explore uh, experience, sensual experience, aesthetics, uh, all these kinds of things. So the existential explorations of Kohelet are remarkably up-to-date. They are the very things that the Western youth culture has been exploring for the last 70 years and sometime in the middle of the 1900s. And it's a theme that existential philosophers have been exploring even longer than that. So it is particularly relevant to the modern world. And it's Pretty amazing that it's 3,000 years old. That 3,000 years ago, somebody was thinking about this stuff uh, that is so up-to-date in the world in which we live. So the conclusion of the whole, he's going to reach this powerful conclusion at the end that true meaning is found in the fear of God. And he's working you methodically and relentlessly toward that goal. He's pushing you to think through deeply what it means if you follow an alternative to that. Uh, he's going to show you that you only are going to reach this point when you are desperate for an answer, when you really realize there is no answer under the sun if I don't take this answer. There is no meaning under the sun if I don't take this answer. And the stakes are as high as possible. 
because the highest stake of all is you yourself. And it's very much like what Jesus said. What shall a man gain if he gain the whole world but lose himself? That's what this book is about. So, a couple questions. Does it surprise you that the Bible contains speculative wisdom? The sort of uh, what-if exploration of these deep philosophical concepts. It's not what we usually uh, hear in Sunday school class. Um, there's been a few sermons preached out of Ecclesiastes, but most of them were taken from the, either the last chapter or the one on time. Um, and the rest of it, nobody pays much attention to. Um, so it's not well-traveled by Christians. Uh, but I would suggest in the 21st century, we ought to travel through this in a little bit more than we do. Any, any thoughts on, on, on that at all? Yeah. And I don't understand a lot of it. But yeah, it's still relevant because this is something, I don't know, if I think about this kind of stuff very much, sure. I can't imagine how much people learn or anything about this kind yeah. of stuff. It's like, I think if, if the church focused on these things a little bit more, we wouldn't have such a bad reputation as a philosophical and scientific world. Yeah. Because we wouldn't be considered as like, as stupid as we kind of are sure. now. Because the Bible addresses these kind of things. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I think as Christians, we often uh, retreat into our own little bubble. And sometimes our bubble is even smaller than the Bible. It's a bubble that's, uh, that is uh, created out of parts of the Bible that we like. And we kind of ignore the rest <laughs> to a large degree. We don't formally ignore the rest, but we don't practically use the rest. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, and if you don't address them, you, you have no authority. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you can't entertain the conversation, if it demonstrates your lack of engagement with the question, it's mm -hmm. going to lose you more authority over your own. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, I think that was not too uncommon, actually. Yeah, and so the funny thing is, listening to, like, getting it actually explained to me, that was the same thought process. Like, I went through that phase where I didn't necessarily actively pursue the search for, like, what life was like, but I definitely did go through that thought process with God multiple times in my uh -huh. life, especially when I was very broke. Yeah. A really rough season, and I had, I didn't realize that that was okay or normal, so, like... <laughs> Well, yeah, I think, I mean, uh, too many times Christians have said God's the answer and they don't even know what the question is. Uh, I, I agree God is the answer, but I think we ought to explore the questions too. Uh, good questions are as important as good answers. 
and so I think that's a valuable thing. Uh, can you understand why Kohelet has been a favorite biblical book for a variety of thinkers? I'm going to list a few who name directly in their writings that this is a, a truly important book, and a couple of them the most important book they've ever read. Leo Tolstoy, George Bernard Shaw, William Butler Yeats, Thomas Hardy, John Updike, and Ernest Hemingway. Now, this isn't a group of apostles I've named here. Some of these guys are atheists. Some of these guys are secularists. Uh, uh, Leo Tolstoy was, uh, well, he was pretty sold on the idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I'm not sure how to evaluate his Christian life besides not my job. Only God can do that anyway. But uh, these are, these are well-known, deep thinkers in the last roughly 100 years or so, all of whom have said that this book was extraordinarily important for them because it forced them to think about things. Now, they, some of them didn't end up where he ended up in the book, but nonetheless, they realized the importance of the questions, uh, and I think that's helpful. All right, well, I think it's about a, this is a good place to, to take a break because I'm getting, going to start with the first uh, chapter when we uh, come back from break. So let me just, uh, let me just uh, stop here with uh, life as a secularist and uh, we will take a break and uh, uh, tell us when to be back, Chief.